Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And we have a special episode this week featuring a conversation I had a few weeks ago for Reset, a special two-day conference on the future of the US economy that Bloomberg Economics co-produced with the Aspen Institute. This exchange I wanted to play you was with my friend Mariana Matsukata, Professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value at University College London. Her first book, The Entrepreneurial State, was very influential, changed the way we think about the role that the public sector has played in some of those great business success stories of our time. And another one, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy, absolutely nailed the way that a particular narrow conception of value had permeated, indeed, distorted the way we think about the economy and society over the last hundred years. And she's just produced a new book, which also seems well-timed for the position we find ourselves in right now. It's called The Mission Economy, A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. I started by asking her about some of the big ideas that had got her thinking about the moonshot as a guide to policy. this extraction of value, which I talked about in the book, The Value of Everything, the kind of you know, record level share buybacks in the last 10 years, $4 trillion have gone to buying back shares by the uh, Fortune 500 companies. This is not the way to run uh, a society in terms of a corporate uh, business model. So whether it's Larry Fink or uh, uh, the, the Business Roundtable putting out the statement over a year ago about, you know, we need to rethink that model in terms of reinvesting back into long run areas that help people, planet, working conditions, and so on. And this conversation is a very important one. We shouldn't dismiss it. If we remind ourselves that markets are not the same thing as business, markets are outcomes of how we govern business and how we govern other types of value creating institutions, we also, you know, present ourselves with the problem which is how is government governed? How is the public sector governed? And what I've been writing about now for some years is that we also have a problem there. It's not just corporate governance that needs to rethink itself. It's also kind of government governance. (laughs) The fact that economic theory, and I don't want to blame economists, of which I'm one, for everything, but the fact that economic theory itself has at best framed the role of the public sector, the state and policy, as simply fixing market failures is part of the problem. We're not going to get there by simply putting different types of patches on the system. And the market failure approach, which forces government to always ask, where's the market failure? How am I going to fix it? That's an important framework, but it's very hard to fix your way towards transformational growth. And by transformational growth, by the way, don't just mean these kind of big social objectives like health and and climate. I also mean literally in terms of the direction of growth. And in the UK, where I'm standing today, the kind of growth we have continues to be consumption-led growth, which has really led to a a, a very high uh, ratio, for example, of private debt to disposable income, not public debt, but private debt to disposable income. So shifting that growth model from consumption to investment-led growth and innovation-driven growth and having that investment and innovation help us solve some really important problems uh, like the ones around climate, health, and the sustainable development goals need a different approach to policymaking, one that I call uh, actively shaping and co-creating markets alongside business, not just fixing markets. And one thing that I found very curious in the UK was um, a lot of the uh, data that's come out since Brexit and now with COVID 
has been showing just how much the government has been overly relying on consulting companies. Deloitte that ended up uh, being asked to roll out the test and trace system and didn't do too well, but also with Brexit, the KPMGs, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and so on, which ended up almost managing, project managing Brexit for the government. This over consultification of government, a Tory lord, Agnew, uh, said that this was leading to an infantilized public sector. And when you start outsourcing your brain, as I think the U.S. government has done in the recent years, one could uh, view the whole NSA kind of Snowden scandal as an outcome of the government almost losing its capability to govern information, computing and the technology uh, revolution, that you have a problem. So this is the reason that in the recent book that I wrote, I asked, well, hold on a second, you know, we can do better. And only 50 years ago, public and private sectors worked together extremely ambitiously um, to get to the moon and back, you know, that, that uh, famous uh, goal that Kennedy set back in 1962. Um, the, the problems we have today are much trickier, actually. There's wicked problems. They require political, behavioral, regulatory change, not just technological change, but it was truly a partnership. There was both business and government doing incredibly difficult things. And what was especially interesting to me is how government through NASA, but also some other public institutions, paid a lot of attention to the how to partner with business. And they even looked at the contracts and undid the existing contracts. And I'll come to that in a minute. But the kind of leadership that was required by government to set the direction of change and then catalyze a lot of risk taking bottom up amongst different actors in society. So, you know, Kennedy's speech was very clear. This is going to cost a huge amount of money, uh, but it's going to be worth it. And focusing on the goal and then backtracking on the budget. All these are just really interesting lessons, I think, today as we need to build back better, that famous slogan, but especially rethink the organizations that we have in both government and in business. And, you know, what's quite striking is that when Kennedy uh, you know, ha- uh, did his speech, they had no clue how to get to the moon. So literally the innovation and risk taking, the experimentation that was re- that was required was immense. Uh, they ended up, you know, landing on this lunar orbit rendezvous way, but they were really exploring all sorts of different techniques. And on the tragic day in which Apollo 1, the fire occurred, one of the astronauts said something that I think is just so important, which was, we can't even talk to each other through different uh, NASA kind of mission control rooms. How are we going to get to the moon? He was talking about the very siloed, linear, vertical, bureaucratic form in which the state itself was structured. And he was basically saying, if we're going to be purpose driven using today's words and get to the moon and back in a generation, we're going to have to rethink actually how we communicate within our own structures. And that kind of attention to organizational change was something that NASA through George Mueller's leadership really embarked on. And this is important, right? Because if you are gonna be purpose-driven, what does it mean for your own organizational culture, not just in business, but also in government? And the purpose, this notion of a partnership with a common purpose is really what I think is so important in terms of allowing us to give more substance to this notion of uh, stakeholder capitalism. It was so curious that they paid attention not only to the procurement contracts in terms of how to devise them so government wouldn't be uh, just, if you want, vulnerable to paying any costs that were presented to them through cost price uh, contracts, which they changed to 
fixed price contracts with incentives for innovation, but they also paid attention to making sure that this enterprise that they were going to do together, this wonderful, difficult mission, wasn't just going to become a gambling casino. So they even had clauses like no excess profits clauses uh, in the procurement contracts. And of course, profits were earned, but there was also real kind of risk sharing and reward sharing in the process. And so sharing both risks and rewards, I think, is incredibly important. This idea that, you know, NASA itself required its own capabilities, investing within its own brain, what I call the dynamic capabilities of the public sector, in order even to know how to write the terms of reference with business to foster a symbiotic and mutualistic uh, partnership. And what was so special about the moon landing was so much happened along the way, spillovers across many different sectors. It wasn't just aeronautics, it was nutrition, materials, electronics. The entire software industry in some ways was an outcome of that. And that really did happen because of a kind of top-down, you know, mission setting, but lots of bottom-up experimentation. And that kind of delicate uh, balance between the two is really what I focus on in the book for allowing us to, uh, you know, really create a concrete investment pathway and trajectory for the SDGs. The SDGs, these are the Earth shots. They're much harder, actually, than purely technological missions. And what that really requires is, again, partnership with purpose. I guess just to get one thing out of the way first, you know, there will be people listening, certainly people who've heard a lot about stakeholder capitalism before and indeed maybe sitting in businesses trying to make it work. Um, there'll be others who are just used to managing people and getting things done. And they'll say, it's not very complicated. If you actually want to make progress, you need to set a big target and then work as a team to meet it. You know, why do I need a whole book to tell me that? What What is different about what you're actually... What, what you're proposing because this isn't just about having a mission yeah. exactly so um for me at least missions are about again how do you partner in a different way so let's even unpick for example um you know any of the goals like you know sdg 14 around clean oceans what does it mean actually to transform it into a very concrete goal like getting 90% of the plastic out of the ocean and make sure that the way that government interacts with business which is constantly interacting in terms of subsidies, guarantees, grants, and loans, becomes actually conditional on you know, business and different types of businesses, which will actually re require different types of support, uh, uh, investing in that goal together. And even though that sounds really obvious, it simply doesn't happen. I mean, I've looked at so many different sectors, especially, by the way, the pharmaceutical sector, which gets all sorts of benefits from government. In the United States, $40 billion a year goes towards drug innovation. And somehow then we don't get that kind of conditionality and partnership right. So intellectual property rights in particular for that sector are often abused. They are too upstream, they're too wide, used for strategic patenting, they're too uh, strong, so hard to license. The prices of the drugs don't actually reflect that collective value creation. And so, you know, governing the partnership, governing innovation in such a way as serious as NASA was when it unpicked those procurement contracts and said, nope, this isn't going to be good. We're going to be taken for a ride. And truly sharing both risks and rewards means doing things quite differently. And the vaccine, which is a great example actually today of uh, you know, both the public and the private sector putting in a lot of money, but also you know, it was based on a lot of previous funding, the Oxford vaccine from also the European a commission, as was, by the way, the Pfizer vaccine, which got money 
from the European Commission and the German government. Um, so these are all kind of ecosystems, public and private investments that produce something like a vaccine. But then if you don't govern it, right, to meet, let's just call it the common good, then that's a problem in terms of the deal. So the idea of a patent pool for the vaccine, but also making sure the vaccine is universally accessible so we don't have what Dr. Tedros called vaccine apartheid, so countries just hoarding it. That's all about kind of governing that process, right, in a particular way. And you could unpick the same thing with digital platforms. You know, everything that makes our smart products smart and not stupid was funded by government, internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri. And yet then if you don't govern that innovation for the public good, you end up with what I was arguing in the beginning, kind of too little, too late, worried about privacy, taxation, always kind of in the back saying, oh, wait, 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 hold on, as opposed to making sure you have kind of you know, what I call pre-distribution, uh, which is a nice term also that others use, which is how do we get the conditions right ex ante so you don't have to pick the, up the mess ex post. And that to me is central to a mission-oriented approach where purpose is at the center of the relationship as opposed to just kind of a siloed notion of how corporate governance can improve. So we're going to try and be kind of ruthlessly practical in this session and think about how it applies to the, the new administration, but any, any government who's trying to think about how to change the way we do these things. You say yourself in the book that there are, there are ways in which the moon landings are not a helpful uh, guide for now and for the challenges we face now. One, of, one is that it was sort of chosen by a quite narrow part of society that we were going to go to moon and maybe not everyone would have signed up for that. Um, but another is that it's, it is quite a sort of clear technical challenge, enormously ambitious and difficult, but easily explained and with a quite clear process leading up to it. Um, where, and I think you could say the vaccines are actually an even better example of that, you know, a very clearly defined target. Some of the sustainable development goals would have that characteristic. They're quite specific. But when you think about something that you're obviously very focused on and you have applied this to, I mean, climate change, so many layers of that that are not just technical. They are also social. They're also about how we value, you know, going back to your other book about how we value things. Um, so I just, where do you get to the point where it's less helpful to have this kind of parallel? Um, you know, how yeah. can you use this approach for something which is more social and more multi-layered? Uh, thanks for that question. It's very important. So, um, you know, what's interesting is, you know, Many people remember that, that famous uh, story that the janitor who uh, worked at NASA when he was asked, what do you do? And he said, I'm helping to get a man on the moon. So in, in some sense, you know, what also the moon landing did was really inspire so many different people, including lots of kids who ended up studying science, you know, because of the inspiration. But it wasn't, you know, citizens weren't engaged in the design, you know, of the mission itself. It, you know, it really was top down. Some of the more interesting missions that we're working on in the Institute that I run at University College London, which is called the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, you know, the whole notion of purpose at the center of political economy, um, are on missions in countries like Sweden, where the national mission is so interesting. It's about a fossil-free welfare state. And then if you break down everything the state does and provides from public transport, public education, public health. A lot of that is actually obviously in partnership with business. Um, but what does it mean to land those, those ambitions in concrete places? Take the, um, the uh, uh, public education system. You know, if you have a carbon neutral agenda, 
a fossil free welfare state agenda, it can actually land in a place like school meals. Right. So you can have the production, distribution and consumption of school meals driven by this carbon neutral agenda. But what would it look like to bring kids to the table, students in schools to the table to design that, but also to monitor it along the way? You know, if the food is sustainable, but kind of sucks and it's not very tasty, that's not going to work. Um, so that both the issue of co-design, but also monitoring along the way is an important point. And in Camden, the part of London where I live, I co-chair the Camden Renewal Commission with Georgia Gould, the leader of the council. And one of the things we've started doing is thinking about carbon neutrality with the place where it lands is the social housing estates, what in the US they call housing projects. And again, what does it mean to bring housing associations or citizen assemblies to the table to really talk and debate and contest about how do we want to live together in these places so that it is not just sustainable, but it's also an outcome of, you know, a discussion. You know, it's easy to pet Greta Thornburg on the head and say, oh, how cute, you know, 16 or 18 year old now cares about climate change. But what does it mean to listen to social movements? And that's really important, by the way, because it's not just, you know, the green movement. It's also the labor movement. Uh, labor at as a record labor is at a record low in terms of the labor share of GDP globally. The profit share is at a record high. Uh, labor unions, trade unions have historically been incredibly important for shaping markets to be more inclusive. We wouldn't have weekends, by the way, not that as a social innovation. We wouldn't have the eight hour workday without trade unions. So, you know, whether it's the labor movement, whether it's the, a green movement, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's care workers today in that movement, what does it mean for governments themselves to listen, to actually allow that to be part of the process through which emissions are set? And in Germany, I think what's interesting is they've had one of the strongest green movements um, uh, across the globe, having risen slowly up to the to the very high level of government. And that ended up fostering a very different relationship between government and business. So a couple of years ago, when the steel industry asked government for a loan and a bailout, as steel is more or less asking every uh, government for a bailout, in Germany, they were confident enough to make that loan conditional on the steel sector reducing its material content, which it ended up doing in its own way. Today, the German steel sector is one of the most green and innovative in the world, not because you know, they went to the World Economic Forum and talked about purpose, but because they had to in order to access the public loan. And that's a really interesting thing that started to be applied with COVID-19 recovery funds in some parts of the world, like in France, where both the uh, airlines and automotive industries uh, received their recovery bailout conditional on uh, reducing or committing to reducing their carbon emissions, whereas in the UK, we just gave a massive handout, you know, to EasyJet, no conditions attached. So that issue of conditionality, I think, is a really interesting, concrete example of how to foster this new partnership. And unfortunately, the word conditionality sounds negative. So I do think we need to think the narrative as well around partnership, you know, uh, purpose-driven social contracts. Clearly, the really, the really tough challenge these days is the U.S., after decades of uh, undermining um, the perceived value of government, only little corners, NASA, I mean, as Michael Lewis points out in his book, it's, NASA was sort of one of the few bits of government that was allowed to take credit as a public sector organization. If you're facing that, which existed long before Donald Trump, and but now coming in as the Biden administration with the particular record of the sort of acceleration of the undermining of government that's happened over the last few years, 
I guess there will there is there is a sort of a debate, obviously ongoing within the administration in lots of areas about whether the best thing to do is to be quietly competent and just remind people that the government can be quietly competent and doesn't need to ruin your life, um, and is actually quite important. Or does it need to be visionary? And of course, a lot of people would say you have to be competent and visionary. But they might sense in the kind of way that you talk about this, a real risk for them, that if they try, if they set those enormous targets and, and seem to signal that they're going to completely transform the way we think about government and have your kind of approach, they'll be setting themselves up for this fail, for a failure, an equally grand failure, which could undermine the battle kind of longer term. So I just wonder when you think about the challenges that the administration faces and this trade-off between being competent and being visionary, how would yeah. you apply your approach? Um, great question. And, you know, and first of all, we should remember that Trump was quite unique <laughs> in case people didn't know. Uh, <laughs> Trump was actually the first president that really attacked what I called the entrepreneurial state. But one of the things I've been arguing is that in the U.S. especially, but also globally, we need to bring together these concepts of, of the welfare state and the innovation state. They can actually work together. And the welfare state can also be a demand pull <laughs> for what then the innovation state also uh, feeds in. So in the U.S., it's very dysfunctional. You have, again, $40 billion a year going in. Uh, from the National Institutes of Health. And then at best, you have Medicare and Medicaid on the sort of demand side, but they're not really aligned. And that's why we get this whole kind of hyperinflated system where the prices and the fees don't reflect at all that public sector risk taking. Biden's bringing back the attention to an industrial strategy and innovation strategy and the investments that we require in both uh, social, physical infrastructure and innovation. That's an important first step. What he needs to avoid is making this kind of an old style, just list of sectors, you know, make America great again in X, Y, and Z areas. What the mission-oriented approach suggests is that we need to remember that some of the best innovations in the US, like all the ones that I mentioned before, making this thing smart and not stupid, internet, GPS, and so on, these were outcomes of the US government trying to solve a problem. So the internet was a solution to trying to get the satellites to communicate. GPS. Similarly, there was a problem. GPS was a solution. So the real question is, how can the American kind of industrial innovation system, which did make it great, you know, they really were the leaders around the compute, you know, uh, computer revolution, et cetera. What are the, you know, what are today's problems and questions that can drive that real kind of dynamic innovation by both the public and the private sector? And lastly, you know, we need to remember when you talked about the U.S. government perhaps getting blamed for any failures that happen along the way, that's normal. You know, it's impossible to innovate without screwing up. But the only difference is that the venture capitalists brag about it, rightly so. You can't have success without also admitting that you're going to fail. And what the venture capitalists do, however, is they make sure they're not just kind of, you know, uh, picking up the downside. They're obviously also getting an upside that gets reinvested back in. That's where the U.S. government in the past kind of, you know, didn't, uh, follow through. So even if you look at the recovery after the financial crisis, when Obama had an 800 billion stimulus program, much of which was initially green directed, that's when he brought in a, a Nobel Prize winner to direct the DOE, Steve Chu, who set up ARPA-E. They made all sorts of investments in different companies to foster a green transition. Some of those companies failed, like Solyndra, some succeeded, like Tesla. Tesla and Solyndra got the same, almost the same amount of money. Um, and the strange thing is that even though Obama had all these Goldman Sachs guys in government, he said something that was quite silly. He said to um, 
Elon Musk, if you don't pay back the loan, we get 3 million shares in your company. Now, the loan was paid back in 2013. It was taken out in 2009. And had the government said what a venture capitalist would say is if you succeed, we get equity, we get 3 million shares. The, the, the change in price per share was 9 to 90. That multiplied by 3 million would have more than paid back the Solyndra loss in the next round. So the point here is that you don't want to just be choosing kind of siloed projects. You want to choose a direction. You want to pick the willing, not pick the winners, pick the willing along the way, but also structure it in an intelligent way so citizens aren't just kind of bailing out the downside, but also getting a share of the upside. Okay, well, final question. There's lots of versions of this question uh, which have come through, which is kind of, it sounds like... uh, nothing's going to be fixed until everything's going to be fixed. You know, you have a wonderful, or economists would put it, you know, you have a very general equilibrium way of looking at the world, um, which is very, it is immensely helpful in thinking about how one thing relates to another and the need to be more holistic. But how should, again, the Biden administration take on the what you're saying, yeah. whilst also allowing there to be sort of short-term practical wins along the way? So, I mean, I usually get accused of the opposite, that I'm too practical and concrete. <laughs> um, so, you know, the big point, of course, is that economic growth has not just a rate, but a direction. That's what we're talking about. That's like the big broad point, which one could argue is kind of too generic. The concrete point, point is how do you render really explicit that directionality? What does it mean for the concrete ways that we design things like procurement. And procurement, by the way, is a huge percentage of government budgets. In the UK, where you and I live, the whole innovation budget of the country is $10 billion. Just the procurement budget of the Ministry of Transport, the Department of Transport, is $40 billion. And this is true almost you know, globally. It's often almost half of the whole government budget. So what does it mean to unpick those contracts, to make them really have purpose, you know, a green transport system and designing that procurement in order that it really crowds in business investment, because this isn't about the state kind of doing everything. It's about choosing and, and really choosing very specific areas. Also, you know, whether it's health or digital platforms, the vaccine, where we can unpick where things go wrong and redesign the contracts themselves to foster a purpose-driven kind of orientation. But also the public investment side has to do much more than just incentivize. You know, this is why if we simply had R&D tax credits, we would not have had the Internet revolution. It required active public investment. It, it was ambitious. It was bold, which then created a whole new kind of you know, market opportunity, which then raised business expectations of where future growth opportunities lie. And unfortunately, so much tax policy, and, and I often go very concrete on different types of tax policy, like capital gains tax policies, simply increase profits. They don't actually create what economists call additionality, catalyzing investment to happen where it wouldn't have happened anyway. And having you know, proper metrics uh, about additionality, but also the kind of partnerships that we are fostering, whether they're predatory or symbiotic or mutualistic, that needs just as much attention as kind of ESG uh, types of targets. Mariana, we could talk a lot more. Um, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for everyone for listening and for all your questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back with more next week. In the meantime, you can always get more from Bloomberg Economics on the Bloomberg Terminal or Bloomberg News website. You can also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with thanks to Mariana Matsukata and the Aspen Institute. 
Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.